Chapter 19 of Mounted Police Life in Canada. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Mounted Police Life in Canada by Captain Burton Dean. Chapter 19 Humours and Uncertainties of the Law. It was during the period of the Prohibition Liquor Law in the early days when permits were difficult to obtain any beer of any sort, whether lager or other, was expensive to import, that hot beer came into fashion, and all sorts of people took to making it. The Slavs and Hungarians used to get gloriously drunk and rowdy on it at their marriage feasts, and the Inland Revenue Department used to try to prevent the manufacture and sale of the beverage. The only interest that hot beer had for the police lay in the question as to whether it was intoxicating or not. A case came before me wherein it was abundantly susceptible of proof that the accused had purchased so much hot beer on a certain day from a certain person for a certain price, and had become drunk thereon. The question was, was the vendor liable under the prohibitory law for selling an intoxicant? the drunken man would never have admitted that his condition was not brought about by some beverage other than the hop beer pure and simple and there was to my mind only one way of ascertaining the properties of the beer i instructed my sergeant-major to buy a couple of dozen bottles of the same brew as had been sold to the drunken men and then to see if he could find someone who was willing to have a prolonged drink at the expense of someone else there was no difficulty at all about the latter proposition a very ready volunteer was found at once and he was shut up in an empty barrack-room with two dozen bottles of hop beer and such accessories as he needed to contribute to his convenience and thirst he managed to wade through eighteen bottles and then was unquestionably drunk at the trial which ensued sergeant major jarvis gave evidence as to the intoxicating nature of the beer and Mr. C. C. McCall, K.C., rose to cross-examine him somewhat in this wise. Now, Sergeant Major, you have sworn that this beer, indicating the exhibits before the court, is intoxicating. Why do you say that? Answer. Because I know it to be so. Have you any special means of knowing it to be so? Answer. I have, sir. Well, then, will you be good enough to tell this court how it is that you are able to be so positive? Answer because I have seen a man get drunk on it. I think the court would like to have more details than that. I know I should. Then the sergeant-major told the story. I never met anyone who could enjoy a laugh against himself better than Charlie McCall. He said to me afterwards, It was too bad to let me drag all that evidence out of the witness and tie the rope around my own client's neck. I cannot for the life of me remember now what it was, but he beat me, after all, on a point of law. He took the case to the higher court at Regina, and the conviction was quashed, with a proviso that no action should lie against the J.P. Another amusing case arose out of a conviction which I made against a certain resident of Lethbridge for the unlawful possession of intoxicating liquor. Notice of appeal was given, and Mr. McCall was counsel for the appellant. The main witnesses for the prosecution were Sergeant Ross and a constable named Stribble. In the interval during which the appeal was pending, Sergeant Ross came to me one morning and said that the convicted defendant in the case 
was trying to persuade Stribble to desert, and that Stribble did not want to go. The defendant's agents, it seemed, were rather persecuting Stribble and were promising him all sorts of inducements to leave the country before the appeal could be heard. Being assured that Stribble had no desire at all to desert, I instructed Sergeant Troth to tell him to appear to comply with his prosecutor's wishes, and to fix a date about three days ahead for making his venture. Sergeant Ross and I, in the course of our many rides together, had come across a piece of river bottom about six miles out of the village, and we had agreed that it would make a nice site for a small farmer to settle on. It was situated on the east side of the Belly River, and its eastern bank was rather precipitous and covered with brush. A tent, therefore, pitched close to the bank, would be out of sight to anybody on the benchland, although it could, of course, be seen from the opposite side of the river. I arranged with a quartermaster sergeant to give Sergeant Ross a tent, stove, furnishings and rations, and these all were carried down to the place in question, and everything was prepared for Stribble's residence. I arranged also to give him a weekly pass, and he was to amuse himself there as best he could. At the appointed hour, on the date arranged, Stribble, dressed in plain clothes, met his friends on the Benton Trail. When it came to the scratch, they did not keep any of the promises they had made him. They gave him a couple of dollars, a kick on the posterior, and started him off. He had before him a walk of a hundred miles before he would be able to buy a morsel to put in his mouth, and there were no settlers along the road, so that two dollars would not be of much use to him. However, the dirty crew of whom I'm writing cared nothing for that. They thought they had sufficiently involved the man with the police force to make it impossible for him to return, and followed him along the road for two or three miles to see that he did not change his mind. When he found that he was no longer being followed, he turned aside to his tent and went to bed. When the appeal came on for trial, as it did in course of time, and Constable Stribble walked into the room in response to the call of his name, the appellant's face was a study. McCall had been led to believe that this witness would not appear, and a hurried consultation took place between counsel and client, neither of whom could give any explanation of this unexpected episode. Stribble simply repeated the evidence he had given at the original trial, and confirmed Sergeant Ross's evidence, as he had done before. McCall, with a view to discredit his testimony-in-chief, began his cross-examination by asking him if he were not in some difficulty in connection with the police force. Stribble never pronounced the word sir. He never got beyond the first consonant, and his answer to McCall was, No, sir. Let me understand this correctly. Is there not a charge pending against you under the Mounted Police Act? Answer. No, sir. There was nothing more to be said. The man's character could not be blackened. There was no reason why the court should discredit his testimony, and the appeal was dismissed. The following is a copy of what appeared in the Western Law Times, Volume 1, page 86, in the late 90s, the city in question being Calgary. Guilty or not guilty. A learned judge of French extraction, not of the Manitoba bench, lately pronounced within 5,000 miles of this city, the following remarkable sentence on a man accused of stealing a horse. Prisoner, the evidence is conflicting, but I find you guilty and sentence you to three months in the guard-room. The evidence, as I say, is very conflicting, but if I was sure, if I was quite sure, 
dat you stole dat horse i would give you two years in de manitoba penitentiary the barrister who habitually furnished the law reports to the paper was away from calgary on a holiday at the time of the foregoing deliverance and on his return his attention was drawn to the report in question he did not want to be mixed up in a blood feud with the learned judge for all time and decided to take the bull by the horns he walked into the judge's chambers one morning with a copy of the law times in his hand and said judge i hope you don't think that i was capable of putting a damned report like this in the paper the judge took the volume from him read the report carefully shut the book with a slam and handed it back to him saying you can tell dat man dat i can talk as good english as he can i remember some years ago when colonel macleod was judge of the southern alberta district that he convicted a blood indian of horse-stealing and sentenced him to undergo one month's imprisonment with hard labor in the lethbridge guard-room the indian on having the sentence interpreted to him burst into a hearty laugh without any apparent reason or explanation and it looked perilously like contempt of court but the judge took no notice and the indian was taken away the police had had in various places at different times so much trouble with indians who tried to escape that a general order existed in the force to the effect that convicted indian prisoners should always wear a ball and chain this meant an iron ball at one end of a chain the other end of which was shackled to the prisoner's ankle he thus had to bear the weight of the ball in his hand the cause of the merriment in court appeared the next day when my sergeant-major who could talk blackfoot brought the indian to me and said he wished to be relieved of his ball and chain i explained that the order had not originated with me and that i could not vary it to that the indian replied that he had been given hard labor for a month and he wanted to work and work hard but he couldn't do so while carrying that ball about he said he had expected to be sent to the penitentiary for three years and as he had only gotten one month he wanted to do as much work as he could in that time he considered himself far too fortunate to want to run away i took off the chain and he was as good as his word for he worked like a trojan as long as he stayed with us the two stories next ensuing are rather apt illustrations of the disquieting ease with which even a well-worked-up case may fail in court through the incompetency of counsel in the spring of eighteen ninety eight the milk river patrol between writing on stone and pendant d'oreille detachments was in the habit of noticing on the open prairie a particular bunch of cattle which was invariably by itself it consisted of from twelve to fifteen head of both sexes but one cow had a calf which had by some oversight escaped the branding iron the calf had too what was called on the range a switch tail which means that the end of the tail had in all probability been bitten off early in life by a timber wolf or a coyote the calf was thus quite noticeable and the patrol never failed to turn aside and see if the animal were still unbranded wondering always how long she would continue to be so one day the patrol came across the bunch as usual the cow was there but the calf was gone somebody had got her an immigrant of two or three years standing had recently taken up a homestead on the milk river and thither the patrol went first to make inquiries 
They heard the bawling of a calf and found the little switch-tail heifer shut up by herself in a long corral. The next step was to drive the bunch of cattle to the corral. The cow recognized and answered her calf's voice as soon as she came within hearing distance. And when the bars of the corral were taken down, the calf ran to her mother, who suckled her and licked her and made much of her, as cows do with their progeny. If the calf had not been her own, the cow would not have allowed her to suck. In the language of the range, the cow and calf claimed one another. The immigrant from the United States was charged with theft and was taken into custody. The case was tried at Lethbridge a few weeks later before my old friend, Mr. Justice Scott. Mr. Coneybear, the Crown Prosecutor, was away from home, and his office was filled by a legal gentleman from MacLeod. It was a very plain, straightforward case, and the principal witness, a constable named Arrowsmith, gave his evidence very clearly and well. I was sitting by the side of the counsel for the Crown, and when the witness had described the reunion of the mother and daughter, I whispered to him, Ask him what that means. The answer would have come like a flash. It means motherhood on the part of the cow. But in spite of its being such an obviously pertinent question, the counsel, incredible as it may seem, refused to ask it. He was stupidly afraid of giving rise to some cross-examination as to whether a range cow had never been known to suckle a calf not her own. There are such instances, of course, now and again, where a cow has lost her calf and a calf has lost her dam, for then a cow's udder is paining her and she is glad to have it relieved, even by a strange calf. This was a morning session of the Supreme Court, and I was due to start on my 32-mile drive to MacLeod at 2 o'clock. I left the court and went about my business. The following Saturday, in accordance with my weekly practice, I was returning to Lethbridge from MacLeod, and, at the crossing of the Old Man's River, which was about halfway, met the judge, who was taking advantage of my teams, to journey to MacLeod, and there hold his court during the ensuing week. As soon as we met, he said, Well, I had to let that calf thief go. I asked, How is that? I thought Arrowsmith gave good evidence. So he did, he replied, but no one told me what all that meant. I am not supposed to know the manners and customs of animals. I have to confine myself to the evidence which is given before me by witnesses, and nothing was said to show that the fact of the animals claiming one another constituted relationship between them. I asked W. to ask the question, I remarked, but he would not, and so a well-worked-up case has fallen through. About six years later, before the same judge at Medicine Hat, I was confronted with a somewhat similar difficulty. A rancher, living at a place called Medicine Lodge, reported that a suckling colt had been stolen from him. The mare was left, but the colt was gone, and it went without saying that the colt did not voluntarily leave its dam. A smart young corporal named McLean constituted the Mounted Police Detachment at Medicine Lodge, and he took the case in hand. In the course of his search, he looked one afternoon into the premises of a settler, away from home at the time, who had always had a somewhat unsavory reputation, although he had never been able to prove anything against him. I had known of him in the MacLeod district years previously. Corporal McLean found, in an out-of-the-way spot, a corral enclosing a mare and a colt, which answered the description of the lost one. The mare had her hind heels tied together. 
McLean put his horse in the stable and sat down to await the owner's return. He came after a while with a rackload of hay, and McLean asked if he could stay the night, as his horse was rather tired, etc. After supper, the settler began to unload his hay, and McLean took off his coat to help him. The settler protested that he was under no obligation to do that, but McLean said, I can't very well sit here and see you work without lending a hand. The reason for McLean's presence being unwelcome appeared when the rack was about half unloaded and the freshly killed carcass of a sheep was found. There were very few sheep owners in that part of the country. The settler had none of his own, and it was quite easily subsequently to ascertain that no one had given or sold a sheep to this man, but nothing was said at the time, nor was his explanation of the possession of the carcass questioned in any way. Early next morning, McLean fetched the owner of the colt, who identified and removed his property, and then criminal proceedings were initiated against the settler, who was admitted to bail, pending his appearance in the Supreme Court. In due time, the case was brought up before Mr. Justice Scott, the prisoner being defended by the late Mr. P. J. Nolan, K.C. I was, as usual, sitting by the counsel for the Crown, and heard Corporal McLean tell in detail the story which I have here outlined. When he had described how the mare's heels were tied, I said to counsel, ask him why that was done. He replied, I don't think it is necessary. I said, it is so far necessary that if you don't ask such an obvious question, it will appear to the court you are afraid to ask it, and Paddy Nolan will make the most of it. There was a look of smug complacency on his face, and I turned from him, and in a stage whisper, directed at the witness, I asked, Why? The judge was busy taking his notes, and after he had finished, he looked up from his book and said, Did I hear someone ask why? By this time, I was so mad at a possible failure of justice, knowing what the judge would expect, and remembering my former experience in a somewhat similar situation, that I said to counsel, in a tone of voice loud enough to be heard by a good many other people. If you don't ask the question, you'll lose your case. This rather shamed him into it, and he asked the witness, What could be the object of tying the mare's heels? The answer came without a moment's hesitation. The mare knew that the colt was not her own, and would not have allowed it to suck if her hind legs had been free. The accused in that case went over the road, as the western expression is, meaning that he went to the penitentiary for two years. In the month of December, 1907, complaint was made to us that, at a little settlement some fifty-five miles southeast of Calgary, certain people were butchering cattle which did not belong to them. Two brothers named Runyon were said to have sold quite a lot of beef in the town of High River to householders at two cents a pound less than the butchers were charging. That of itself was hardly suspicious, for farmers, having no shop rent to pay, could always undersell the butchers who had that expense to meet. The Runyon brothers were Mormons, the sons of a Latter-day Saint's bishop, who had recently come into the country from the United States. Detective Sergeant Nicholson was detailed from another division to work on the case, and being unknown in the district, went to the village in question, and put up in the hotel there with the avowed object of looking for land to purchase. 
in the course of his peregrinations he found evidence of quite a number of cattle having been killed on the runyon brothers homestead although there were only two hides on the corral fence this gave rise to a mental inquiry as to where the hides of the other beasts were at about three o'clock on the morning of january twelfth nineteen o eight the weather being fortunately propitious he hid himself in a straw stack about half a mile from the runyon's corral and watched the brothers drive an animal into the corral and kill it presently three indians drove up in a wagon into which the beef was loaded and the indians drove off in the direction of their reserve about ten o'clock in the forenoon he saw the brothers cut three head of cattle out of a bunch belonging to another man who was pasturing them in a field near their place and drive them on to their own homestead to readers who are ignorant of the conditions of life on the western prairies it is i think necessary to explain how it was possible for peripatetic cattle to be gathered and stolen in such an easy way as it has been described in the early days a man who owned any cattle whether many or few first of all selected a brand which he registered as his own he burned his brand with a red-hot iron into the skin of his animals and turned them out to run at large on the public domain he had nothing to pay for this and as long as providence was careful of his interests his cattle grew and prospered at no expense to himself they might and did suffer to some extent from the depredations of timber wolves and coyotes and they might be overtaken by a severe winter which would freeze and starve the poor brutes to death but their subsistence was not costing the owner anything and he did not care how much they suffered if he found them dead in the spring he was out of luck and that was all there was to be said there are still owners who have more cattle than they can pasture on their own land and they allow their animals to run at large in the same way that is how the presence of these estrays was accounted for not far from the runyon premises there was living another american emigrant who had only been a short time in canada and had worked for the runyons for about a month during november and december nineteen o seven him sergeant nicholson approached delicately and in course of time induced him to talk he said that he had worked for the runyon brothers from november fifteenth until december fifteenth nineteen o seven and that during that time they had killed at least fifteen head of cattle which did not belong to them the killing being for the most part done in the night time he said during the first week in december they killed a roan steer branded i helped to skin the animal the hide was cached in the stable under some hay and i believe it is still there every night during the first two weeks in december they killed an animal and i believe there are at least forty hides cached about the premises he told the sergeant that a lot of beef had been traded to indians from the blackfoot reserve in exchange for coal from the indians mine and for wood in the course of a night or two sergeant nicholson investigated the stable and therein found some hides and beef hidden the hides were frozen stiff and could not in that condition be opened out to show what brands they bore a warrant to search the premises and a warrant to arrest the men were issued in calgary and to avoid possible trouble we made rather elaborate preparations to effect the arrest wholesale stealing of the sort described could obviously not have continued for any length of time without arousing the suspicion 
of at least some of the neighbors in those parts, and it was a reasonable inference that, if they did not profit by the nefarious proceedings of the Runyons, they were at least in sympathy with them, and might be expected to help them in a difficulty. A fellow countryman of the brothers, who was employed as stock detective, was necessary, by the Southern Alberta Stock Rowers Association, told us that if these men should happen to be able to do so, they would put up a fight, as he knew them to be bad characters. That being so, I did not propose to take any chances. Sergeant Nicholson had instructed to get in touch with the Runyons as a possible purchaser of their place, and to arrange, if possible, that he could stay in one of their houses as a paying or non-paying guest, after the brothers had been removed. As it happened, we had no trouble. Edgar Runyon was arrested in High River on January 18th, whither he had gone to sell some beef, and John was found by a mounted patrol at his farm on the following day. And both brothers were sent at once to Calgary. After this, Sergeant Nicholson and some members of the patrol, assisted by Mr. A. F. Fagel, the hired man of whom mention has been made, made a comprehensive search for hides. Those of the stolen animals were all hidden away, some in the stable under the roof, some rolled up tightly and buried in a hole in the ground, some covered with a load or two of manure, and some had disappeared altogether. Those in the hole and under the manure were frozen so hard that they had to be chopped out with an axe. These hiding places were all indicated by A. F. Fagel, who had placed the hides there, under orders from his employers. Each hide was tagged with a linen luggage label, showing where, when, and by whom it was found. There were ten of them altogether. Two had the brands cut out, and one bore no brands at all, so that it was impossible to tell who the owners were. The thawing out of these hides and clipping of the long hair, so as to expose the skin bearing the brand, occupied several days, and then it was necessary to persuade the several owners scattered all over the country to come to Calgary to identify their property and to give evidence that they had never parted with their property in the animal under discussion. This case was of such magnitude and importance to the stock industry that the Stock Growers Association retained the services of the late Mr. P. J. Nolan, the eminent K.C., to assist the Crown Prosecutor and then we had to find out who the people were who had obtained beef from the prisoners by purchase or by trade. This was not an easy matter, as in the village of Brant District most of the settlers were Mormons and friends of the Runyons, and shielded them as much as possible. Another difficulty was that comparatively few of the witnesses could tell, even approximately, the respective dates of their deals. It was easy to obtain, through our detachment on the Blackfoot Reserve, statements from the various Indians who traded sometimes wood and sometimes coal for beef. And on February 18th, the accused were arraigned on a charge of stealing seven hides, the property of seven different owners. They pleaded not guilty. Their counsel applied to have John Runyon tried separately. And the reason for this appeared when, in his defense, he claimed the protection of the court and took the blame of the whole business upon his own shoulders. He swore that Edgar was not implicated in the killing of any of the animals. He said that Fagel and he had buried the hide in the hole, and claimed that Fagel helped him to slaughter the beasts. 
he also admitted that he had killed seven head altogether. Edgar swore that he knew nothing at all about the hides in the story that had been told in court, that his brother did all the trading, and that the witnesses were mistaken when they said they had traded with him as well as his brother when they obtained beef for coal. Further, that Fagel was mistaken when he said that he and Edgar buried the hide in the hole. His wife swore that while she was taking her clothes off the line, she saw John and Fagel drive out and bury a hide in a hole. She said her husband was away at the time. She remembered Indians coming once or twice, but could not say if her husband was at home on either occasion. Fagel had been one of the last witnesses called by the Crown, and gave straightforward evidence as to what he knew. But, in preference to taking the oath, he asked to be allowed to affirm. When asked his reasons, he replied that he believed in a supreme being, and in a hereafter, but did not believe in punishment after death for deeds done in the flesh. That made the judge look askance at the witness and his evidence, for he was a son of a Church of England clergyman, and had joined the Church of Rome, so that it was not to be wondered at that he would be horribly shocked by Fagel's religious convictions. Notwithstanding that he had heard the Indians speak of both brothers in connection with their bartering, calling the younger one Paul, the judge said in his charge to the jury, I think the whole question consists in the comparative credibility of John and Edgar, and Mrs. Edgar on the one side, and of Fagel on the other. If you believe Fagel, you will convict this man. If you believe the others, you will acquit him. If you have a fair, honest, reasonable doubt in your minds as to the guilt of the accused, it would be better to acquit him. There was not a word of comment as to the Indian testimony. The jury followed the advice given and acquitted Edgar, while John withdrew his original plea and formally entered a plea of guilty. He was sentenced to two years in the penitentiary. However gratifying to the Runyon family this settlement may have been, it is unnecessary to say that the police could not accept it as final. It argued a good deal of assurance for foreigners to come into a white man's country and think that they could play fast and loose with law and order in the way these Latter-day Saints had been doing. They were fairly well-to-do people and had no need to steal other people's cattle. I have never heard of a Mormon bishop who was not well off, not to say rich, and the Runyon brothers had money enough to establish themselves comfortably on their farms and to buy out the brand and a herd of cattle numbering about 160 head. In the country from which they came, money has an influence which it does not have under the British crown, and these Mormons may have had an idea that it could protect them from the consequences of their evil deeds. I came across an instance of this some years ago in Montana. In Cascade County there lived a very fine old man, who was, by way of being wealthy, and was very much liked by everyone who knew him. He had a nephew, a worthless scamp, of whom he was inordinately fond, and to whom he was by far too indulgent. This young rascal conceived the idea of coming to Canada with a cher ami, of whom his uncle highly disapproved and the pair of them were actually seated in a northbound train at Great Falls, waiting for it to pull out. The old gentleman, distressed beyond reason, heard of this escapade at the last moment, and boarded the train to expostulate with his troublesome relative, but all to no purpose. 
The train was about to start, and the old fellow had to get out. His distress must have made him temporarily insane, for he walked off from the car a few paces and took pot shots at it with his revolver. Fortunately, there were very few passengers, and beyond the damage done to the car itself, no one was hurt besides the fugitive girl. One of the bullets found its billet in the back of her neck, and the train started. It was a two-hundred-mile run to Lethbridge, and on arrival there, the unhappy passenger had to be taken to hospital, where she died within twenty-four hours. A United States sheriff came, of course, to investigate the circumstances, and a charge of murder was in due course laid against the uncle. The old man, after many weary months, was acquitted, not being held answerable, even for manslaughter. But it was a poor man that regained his freedom. To return to Edgar Runyon, as soon as the court stenographer's notes were transcribed, I preferred a charge of perjury against Edgar Runyon, and called three Blackfeet Indian to prove that Fagel was witness to a trade which they had made with the accused at his farm. They all swore that an Indian named Sarkey Medicine Pipe traded a pair of moccasins to Edgar Runyon in exchange for some beef. They were asked why they called the accused Paul, and they said because his brother called him so. The jury brought in a verdict of guilty, with a strong recommendation to mercy, on account of the man's family, and the judge, who was made of sterner stuff than the judge in the previous case, gave effect to it by saying, Had it not been for the recommendation of the jury to mercy, I would have inflicted a severe sentence, as I do not like this matter of perjury. The accused is sentenced to eight months' imprisonment, with hard labor in the guard-room at Calgary. So, after all, the young saint got off pretty easily. End of chapter 19